Well, good morning to you guys. Uh, to you parents especially, we are uh, thrilled and excited that you guys are with us here on this Parents Weekend. It is a joy for us to have you guys. Uh, my name is Trey Corey. I'm the college pastor here at our Southwood campus. Um, and uh, for us here at Grace Bible Church, uh, I'll tell you guys, it's not just a privilege to have you guys here this morning as parents, but we wanted to extend to you guys a special welcome, but also a special thanks. Uh, for us as a church, a huge part of our heart as a church is for college students. And so we counted a huge privilege and a huge honor to get to shepherd and to get to worship with and to serve your students. And so thank you for letting them be here. Thank you for entrusting them to us for the four years or longer that they may be here at Texas A&M University. Uh, For us, on a Sunday morning, we have at least, if not more than 50% of the people who walk through our doors on a Sunday morning are college students. And a huge part of that for us is that that is where our heart is. Uh, Our mission as a church is to raise up the next generation of leaders to reach our world for Christ. And that mission statement very much resembles our priority and our heart for college students. And so uh, to you parents, uh, thank you guys especially and be proud praying for us, especially uh, it is a huge privilege to shepherd your students and to see them developed and, and to grow into the image of Jesus Christ and, and then eventually to leave us into wherever it is the Lord may have for them. And it's a huge privilege for us to get to be a part of that process. And we counted a huge joy. Uh, we have been going through the book of Hebrews this year, actually all the way back to the first Sunday of the fall. And we're going to be continuing on this morning through the book of Hebrews. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Uh, for you students who have been wondering if we're going to spend a whole nother year next year in the book of Hebrews, we are not. We're going to finish this book this year, all right? Actually, we're going to be in the last chapter of Hebrews this morning, Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, we're going to be verses 1 to 14 this morning. Uh, The writer of Hebrews tells us this, uh, starting in chapter 13, verse 1. Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves are also in the body. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and consider the result of their conduct. Imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Pray with me. Father God, we give you great thanks that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that your nature, your character is unchanging. And Father, I pray that as we continue to walk with you, as we continue to draw near to you, Lord, I pray that you would reveal yourself all the more to us this morning. Allow us to see you more clearly. Allow us to see you more powerfully, Lord. Uh, Father, I pray in particular, Lord, that we would just be in a fresh way this morning, uh, singularly devoted to your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that you would awaken in us and that you would refresh in us a deeper love for him in the light of what he's done on our behalf. Father, I pray this morning that you would give us just a singular focus upon him. And Father, as we open your word, Lord, I pray that you would illuminate our minds, that you would teach us, that you would direct us, that you would guide us. I pray that you would lay our hearts open and that you would convict us, challenge us, and push us. I pray that you, we, you would cause us to walk out of here different people this morning. Father, I pray that you would be with me, that you would allow my words to be yours, and that you'd use this time however you see fit, Father. We ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. In walking with you guys for years now, I've noticed that in terms of dating relationship, there's often a few markers or milestones of any dating relationship. Obviously, it starts with the first phone call, sometimes then the first date, and eventually then comes the first time that on Facebook you update your status and you declare to the world that you are, in fact, dating in a relationship, right? Um, To you parents, let me let you in on a newsflash in case you haven't figured this out yet. Uh, You need to be on Facebook. Um, Your kids may not like this, but you'll find out more about them on Facebook than you will in any conversation that you have with them, all right? So be on Facebook. 
uh, free little piece of a uh, nugget of advice for you this morning. Uh, but at some point, you guys will update your status and say, hey, I am in a relationship with this person. You declare it to the world. It's a huge first milestone for you guys. And then at some point, as you guys continue to date, at some point, there may be a breakup. Uh, I was once told uh, that any good relationship has at least a couple breakups. Uh, that may not be you. That was Marcy and I, at least. We had a couple good breakups, all right? And then sometime after the first breakup, there may even be the first kiss as you guys get back together and you apologize for the time apart. Uh, some of you guys may kiss in dating. Some of y'all may kiss at engagement. Some of you guys may kiss and reserve that until marriage. And at some point comes the first kiss, the first breakup. Uh, and then at some point, I've noticed really the biggest milestone marker pre-engagement before you put a ring on someone's finger is when the L word gets dropped. All right. Like a bomb that goes off at some point, that guy takes up the courage and he says to you, I love you. The L word comes out and it redefines everything. All right. For Marcy and I, we had uh, dated through much of college. And as soon after I told her I loved her, soon after that, I put a ring on her finger. It came really quickly. Um, and then as we were dating and going through, actually going through engagement, then we took off at one point to Midland, Texas, where she's from, West Texas girl. And we had one of our first wedding showers. And on the way back from that uh, wedding shower, we began to have a question or a discussion about love, what love is. In fact, the way that Marcy launched off that conversation is with this comment at the beginning of a seven hour road trip that we were about to have. She said at the beginning of that conversation, she says, aren't you glad we've never told anyone else that we love them? There was a problem. I had in high school, all right? I had told a girl in high school that I loved her, all right? Now, in my mind, as we had talked and as we dated, I had told her about every relationship I had ever been in and ever thought about. Um, but in my mind, that relationship, it was high school. It didn't count. No one knows anything about love in high school. I didn't know what love meant. I used the word, but I had no clue about it. And so I figured it didn't count, right? Um, and so I had a decision to make, though, at the beginning of that seven-hour road trip that we weren't going to escape one another, Right. I had to tell her, do I tell her the truth or do I just flat lie to her and then eventually drop her off? And right before dropping her off, go ahead and tell her the truth. Well, uh, having a little bit of integrity, I went ahead and realized that I was about to ruin the seven hour road trip. And I went ahead and told her, Marcy, I'm so sorry, but I actually have told someone in the past that I love them. And that high school girlfriend that I told you about, well, I had no clue what love was. It was my first real relationship. And I used the L word because I didn't know any better. And as you may suspect, tears began to flood like the Niagara Falls and silence ensued for a good long time. All right. Um, that seven hour road trip was absolutely brutal. All right. Uh, we talked through it. We resolved that we got to a good spot by the end of the seven hours held captive in the car with one another. It was a great spot to learn how to work ourselves out of conflict because we were in it. Right. And it was emotional. Uh, those seven hours of awkwardness and emotional brutality taught me an important lesson. All right. And that's this. And then our misunderstandings about what love is and our misdirections of where we put our love can cause huge damage, emotionally can cause huge damage in any relationship that we're a part of. That when you and I misunderstand what love is, and when we direct love into the wrong places, into the wrong people, and at the wrong times, it can bring a huge damaging to our lives and a huge damaging uh, element to the relationships that we're a part of. I realized that in that seven-hour road trip. Um, and I began to realize that even more as we look at our passage this morning, Hebrews chapter 13, we're going to see the, the dominant theme of love throughout Hebrews chapter 13. Uh, we've been walking through this book, and really, I think as this book ends, it's going to end with this theme of love that's going to hold this community together together, a community that's under all kinds of pressure from the culture that they're a part of. If you remember, these people have been under great persecution. Uh, much of their property, much of their lives, much of what they count dear is all in jeopardy and all under pressure. And what's going to hold this community together is love. 
And if they misunderstand what love is, if they misunderstand how love acts, it's going to have a huge harm on their community, on their relationships. And really, so the writer of Hebrews is going to end this book really on the bond of unity, really what's going to hold this community together. It's going to be love. And in particular, what we're going to see this morning, and thankfully we won't need seven hours of a road trip of awkwardness to figure this out, is what love does, what love looks like, and how love acts this morning in Hebrews chapter 13. Particularly, we're going to see four things this morning, four things in the ways in which that love acts. Really, as we kind of begin in verses one to three, what we're going to see is that love acts with hospitality. Uh, Love acts with hospitality. What we're going to see in verses one to three is that love always gives what God has provided. And it gives away what God has provided to whomever that God would put in our path. And we'll give it away to whether we know the person or not and whether that person can pay us back or not. Notice what the writer of Hebrews says, verse 1 again. Let love of the brethren continue. A simple charge at the top of chapter 13 is a simple charge that the community of faith always has for one another. The call that you and I have as a body of Jesus Christ is to love one another. It is our corporate call. Uh, In fact, as you look throughout the New Testament, we find this idea of uh, the church being called to love one another throughout the New Testament. We find it also in the great commandment that you and I are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, but we're also to love one another as ourselves, and that you and I are called to one another. We are part of a community that we've been made part of, and that community lays responsibilities on one another in the way that we interact. In fact, notice uh, in verse 3, the end of it, notice what he says, that you are to remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, and and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves are also in the body. Notice their corporate call to one another is in light of the community that they're a part of. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you are a part of a community of faith. And in in a Western American culture and churches that we are a part of, so much of our lives is individualistic. So much of our spiritual life can be individualistic. We've talked about that over and over again, also, also through this book. And yet what the writer of Hebrews is doing is he kind of ends this book is again reminding them that what their call is too is not just to Jesus Christ, but to one another. They're called to love one another. It is their corporate call. In fact, it's not just to those they know, the brethren that they're a part of in their community, but they're also called to love those they don't know, some of which may be prisoners, some of which may be those who are ill-treated, people that they may or may not know and people who may or may not be able to pay them back hospitality is giving away what God has provided to those we may or may not know and to those who may or may not be able to pay us back. That's how love acts. Love acts with hospitality, a giving away of all that God has provided. In fact, it's not just our corporate call, but it's also our calling card. That as you look, look through the first century church throughout the book of Acts, as you look through the New Testament, it's not just that you and I are called to love one another, but that becomes the calling card for our communities. It is what defines our communities is the way that we love one another. The way that you can put a bunch of people from a bunch of different cities who all may have one commonality and that we are either from Texas A&M University or from Blinn, all in this one town. And yet even with that commonality, there's all kinds of differences about us, whether it's our family upbringings, whether it's our uh, uh, socioeconomic uh, lot in life and the families that we're a part of, whether it's our background, whether it's our ethnicity, we are all diverse. And yet part of one church community, we're called to love one another and it defines us in the world. In fact, as we look at Acts chapter 2, uh, to a community that was under pressure as well, this is what the writer of Acts tells us. He says that the, that community, they were all together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with a whole. Um, in, in a culture that's all about capitalism, it's almost like you get a little taste of communism here, right? There's a sharing of all things. They were selling their possessions. They were sharing with each other the things that they had that were theirs. They didn't consider it to be theirs. They were passing it on on all that God had given them. They were passing it on to the community that they were part of. In fact, Christ will say like this in John 13, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. 
It is our love for one another that defines us in the world and not only defines us in the world, but defines the, the king who we worship. Notice, by the way that we love one another, men and women get a picture of who God is, in particular what God has done on our behalf. They see that God is a loving God, that God is one who reconciles men and women of all different kinds of people together, that God can bring peace where there's violence, that God can bring commonality where there's difference, that God can unite men and women from all different kinds of backgrounds and organizations and bring them under one banner, and that's Jesus Christ. That's what, that's what love does as we come together with one another. But in fact, hospitality as love acts that way is not just about cute finger foods, all right? Uh, I think one of the things I think we miss often in our context in this day and time is that hospitality was absolutely essential for the first century church. And so it's not just our corporate call, it's not just our calling card, but for some of you guys, it may be your gifting. All right, hospitality is not just about cute finger foods, but it is essential to ministry and essential to how God is moving even in the nations. I think a lot of what we miss in this day and time is that if you think back to the first century church, hospitality was absolutely essential for the life of the church. Back when the first century church began to emerge and began to grow, they were not meeting in in standalone buildings for the express purpose of worship like we do this morning buildings that have offices, buildings that have sanctuaries. They were meeting in people's homes, meeting in people's living rooms, meeting in people's open patios. They were meeting in actual homes. And unless someone opened their home, unless someone made themselves available, uh, the church had no place to meet. And it wasn't just that the church had no place to meet, but also the church had no way to get its message out unless people were willing to host missionaries. And so hospitality became really necessary and absolutely essential to, to missions and to the church being gathered and spreading. In fact, a guy named John Elliott said this, that the early church's hospitality in, in provided for the sustenance of itinerant missionaries, the hosting of strangers, the care of the needy, and the assembling of worshipers. That the early church hospitality allowed the church to gather and allowed the church's message to move forth and to be established in new places. If the church wasn't hospitable, the church could not have met and the church could not have had their message go out forth from Jerusalem. Hospitality was essential. In fact, if you think about the early church as well, a church who was under persecution for the church and for someone to open their home was bringing great visibility and great danger to their own lives and their own welfare. If the church and the gathering of Christians was bringing about persecution and intense uh, sacrifice, then for someone to have the church come in their home was making themselves a target and making themselves very vulnerable to all kinds of persecution. In fact, also even for the prisoners who had been arrested for their faith and being put in prison and being ill-treated, even those prisoners, their very livelihoods were at stake as to whether someone was hospitable to them or not. In our church, we have all kinds of times where someone goes through a hard time and we have meal plans for them. We bring them meals so that they have some, some food. Someone has a baby, we bring them meals. Uh, someone goes through something hard, even in this community as college students, we do all kinds of things to help out. Someone's going through finals, you're going to be bringing coffee to one another so you can stay up in all kinds of godly hours of the night, right? Um, and same way though, for prisoners at that point in time, the only way that they were going to survive was if someone cared for their needs and if someone brought them food. Hospitality at that point in time was not about cute finger foods, it was about life and death for the church and even for men and women. Hospitality was essential for life. And I think for a lot of you guys, I want to challenge y'all, some of y'all this morning, that some of y'all, your gifts, your passions uh, are not about teaching Bible studies, and that's fine. Some of you guys, your gifts and your passions may be about hosting and serving and serving behind the scenes. And I want you guys to know at our church, there's all kinds of ways to do that. There's all kinds of ways to get involved. Uh, Every Sunday here, you guys may notice this or you may not, um, but we have at least one or two couples every Sunday morning who sits in the back and help serve coffee and donuts to you guys. They're here to help create an environment for you guys to 
feel welcome, to feel this is a place that you can worship. They realize that you desperately need coffee to wake up on a Sunday morning, so they're here early to help you, all right? Um, and it's not just that. We have a, a fellowship team. We have a service team. We have all kinds of ways and teams and people that are involved to help uh, enable us to do what we do as a church and serving and helping hosts. It's huge and a part of what we do as a church. But the other thing I want to challenge you guys to is that it's not just about hosting and hospitality for those that we know. You and I are also called as a part of the church body, universal and global, to care for those who are in need. And in particular, one of the things I want to highlight for you guys is in in the place that we live, in in the country that we're a part of, with all kinds of freedom to worship, there are men and women throughout the world who are suffering much as the people of Hebrews were. Much as the first century church where they are under persecution, they're under great difficulty, and they are a part of the body that you are a part of as well. Not in the local body of believers that you know that you interact with here every Sunday morning or throughout the week as in part of the different organizations that you're a part of here, either at, at Grace or on campus, but you're also part of a universal global body of men and women who are struggling for their faith, who are trying to stand firm under great governmental persecution. I want to give you guys a website. I want to give you guys another way to get involved and be a part of the universal global body of Christ. Some of you guys may have heard about this, but there's a group called the Voice of the Martyrs. And they have a website called, uh, at www.persecution.com. And this group exists so as to help the church, particularly here in America and in free places, to know of and to know how to pray for and know how to come to the aid of those who are being persecuted across the world for their faith. I'd love for you guys to check out that website sometime this week. I'd love for you guys to kind of see ultimately, hey, universally across the world, what's happening to believers in Jesus Christ. You and I live in a a pocket of the world that is incredibly different than really the majority of the world. You and I have a tendency to get, in a sense, tunnel vision and be isolated on our little world, whether it's our little A&M campus or our little church. And yet you and I are part of not just a local body of believers, but you and I are part of a universal global body of believers. And that you and I are called to love not just those that we know that are in our midst, but to be a part of and supporting and praying for those across the world, which is why we do missions. But it's also why I think it's great for you guys to be aware of the persecuted church throughout the world. And that website and that organization is a great spot to add to part of your spiritual life, praying for, uh, finding out how you can be involved with and coming to the aid of the persecuted church. Really, as we see love act, it always acts with hospitality. It always moves out generously, giving away what God has provided, giving it away to those that we know and those that we don't know, giving it away to those who can pay us back and those who can't. But love doesn't just act with hospitality, it also acts with purity. Verse 4 is going to move and transition us to the concept of purity, but what you're going to see is that it's not just that love gives away in hospitality what God has provided, but in particular, in purity, love only takes what God has provided. In hospitality, love gives away what God has provided, but in purity, love only takes what God has provided. Notice what he says in verse 4. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. How do we get from prisoners to sex? (laughs) What just happened, right? Uh, I think the theme of love is the banner throughout all of chapter 13. And what he's trying to do for you and I is talk through a different angle of love. And in particular, as he's going to talk about sex and marriage, what he's wanting us to highlight and to begin to see is that love doesn't just give away what God has provided, but in particular, love takes and it experiences only what God gives. It doesn't take beyond what God has provided. It doesn't take beyond what God gives. In fact, marriage and sex, we find throughout the scriptures, they are good things that God has created that are gifts from him. In fact, for those that would deny marriage and deny sex, Paul will speak of those false teachers and he'll call them liars in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Notice what he says about them. False teachers are liars who forbid marriage, which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. Marriage and sex are good things. The physical body is a good thing. 
And yet our culture and our world for sure has twisted and tainted in, in those things in ways that are beyond what God has created in the way that he's designed them. In particular, as he talks about marriage and he talks about the marriage bed, what he's saying is that marriage and sex is good. But when you and I move into those arenas outside of the way that God has designed them for you and I, it leads not to our satisfaction, but it leads to our defilement. In particular, hospitality is giving away what God has given to you and I. Purity is taking only what he's given us and not taking anything more than what he's provided. For a lot of us in college, you and I are all looking for and waiting for certain things for God to do on our behalf. Uh, some of you guys are rounding through your senior year. You may have just gotten a ring this past weekend. Congratulations. And some of y'all are going to be thinking, where is my spouse? <laughs> uh, how am I leaving this campus in this place with a ton of godly Christian people and I don't have a spouse? Why has God not provided me a spouse yet? Let me encourage you. God will provide for you just as he sees best and just at the right timing. And what purity is, is not taking and grabbing what he's not given and what's not his best and waiting for him and being patient with him. And ultimately, I think as we kind of look through this concept of purity, ultimately what we take and when we take things that are not intended for us, it leads to our defilement. I ran across a crazy story this week uh, on Yahoo. There's a story about a couple in Michigan who uh, are suing Applebee's, all right? Uh, they're suing Applebee's because, and some of y'all may have heard about the story, uh, but they're suing Applebee's because they had gone there with their 15-month-old son and they had ordered their 15-month-old son apple juice, all right? Um, and uh, over the course of dinner, by the end of dinner, all of a sudden they began to notice, and I quote, grossly inappropriate behavior from their 15-month-old. Now, uh, I ha- my, my wife and I have an 18-month-old, so I don't really know what grossly inappropriate behavior would be. Um, but they began to wonder, something is definitely off. And so they kind of, suspicions, and they, they took uh, the little kid's sippy cup, the kind of little baby cup, and took a sip of it, and it was not apple juice. It was margarita mix with alcohol in it, all right? Um, and, and they were blown away. They actually did a blood content uh, test on their 15-month-old and found that he had a 0.1 alcohol blood content level, all right? And, and according to the story, uh, he had uh, hangover symptoms for at least two days, a 15-month-old, all right? Um, now, this is where the story takes another turn and gets even crazier to me, parents, especially for y'all who are here. Uh, according to the lawsuit, this family had had this happen on multiple occasions, all right? Um, now, the first time some restaurant serves my 18-month-old alcohol, we're gone, all right? We are not coming back. There's, that's a one-strike-and-we're-done kind of thing, all right? But this family apparently has had this happen multiple occasions, and now we're bringing forth a lawsuit, all right? Now, what's the moral of the story? What's the point, all right? Obviously, this 15-month-old had taken and experienced and consumed what was not intended for him, all right? And the result of it was that he was defiled. He was ruined by it, all right? In much the same way, when you and I take what God has not yet provided to us and what is not yet intended for us, its result in our lives is that it defiles us, is that it ruins us, that it does not provide the joy and satisfaction and meaning that we think it will. And ultimately, when it comes to purity, when we talk about purity, it often, we often think about, in a sense, the sexual realm. But purity, I, I want to expand it to, to more of the general idea of you and I taking what God has not yet given. When you and I grow impatient, when we grow discontent, and we begin to grab and to take what we know we have a desire for, but what we haven't yet seen God provide, you and I are moving beyond the realm of what God has intended for us, and we're moving into the realm of impurity. And the reason we move in that realm is not because our desires for sex or our desires for relationship or our desires for money are wrong or bad. We move into those realms because by and large, we're discontent and impatient with God and his timing and his provision. Our frustrations and what's gone awry is not that we have a whole wrong set of desires. <laughs> it's not that we don't love God at all. What's, grown, what's gone wrong and why we've moved in that direction is we've grown discontent with God's provision and his timing. 
Every problem of impurity is a problem of discontentment. And really, as we kind of see the passage turn in, in verse four from sex to verses five and six to greed and money, what we're going to see is that every problem of impurity is a problem of a lack of simplicity. Every time we begin to take what God has not provided, what we're going to see over and over again is that it's because we've grown discontent in God's provision and his timing. And that's really going to be the problem. Look with me, verses five and six. Notice how we got into problems of impurity. Verse four or verse five, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. He's going to transition us from the content or the concept of sex to the concept in the the paradigm of money to illustrate for us yet again, that when we begin to take what God has not provided and we begin to move into the areas of impurity, we're moving into those areas out of discontentment. The solution to greed is contentment. The solution to uh, impurity is contentment. And what contentment is, is simply a quiet confidence in God's provision and his timing, and not just in his provision, but in him himself. That what he's provided is enough for what we need in life, and that he's enough for what we need in life. And when it comes to my joy, it comes to my happiness, it comes to my sense of satisfaction and meaning, all that God has provided me right now is enough for me to experience those things. And then when we begin to grab not what he's provided, or we begin to grab and experience things contrary to what he's called us to and commanded us to, we begin to move out of the realm really of, of actually finding and experiencing joy and satisfaction. And we give pray to, we give uh, light to discontentment and we give in and we land in impurity. Ultimately notice uh, the confidence for contentment comes in verse, the end of verse five. He says, uh, being content with what you have for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. The cause for contentment, the confidence for contentment is always in God himself. He says to to those who are under persecution, to those who are in difficulty, to those who are waiting, I am enough for you. (laughs) I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. The question is not in my presence or absence, but the question comes, am I enough for you? It's not just my provision, but, but me in particular. Am I enough for what you need for joy, satisfaction, and meaning in life? When you don't have this, or you don't have this, or you don't have this, but you have me, am I enough? And really the, the, the confession of contentment comes in verse six. When the, when the people respond back, we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? The confession of a contentment is, hey, the Lord is my advocate. He is my helper. He is enough for me. I'm not fearful of the future. I'm not fearful of man. I'm not fearful of anything because what God has provided me is enough. And I can give it away in hospitality and I can only experience what he's provided me and, and maintain my purity as I, as I am content in what he's provided In fact, when it comes to money, uh, Benjamin Franklin has said this, money uh, never made a man happy yet, nor will it. There is nothing in its nature to produce happiness. The more a man has, the more he wants. Instead of its filling a vacuum, it makes one. If it satisfies one want, it doubles and triples that want another way. That was a true proverb, but the wise man rely upon it. Better is little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble therewith. Uh, For you students right now, you're broke poor. Uh, It's awesome, right? Uh, A day is coming when uh, you will uh, not be financially completely dependent on your parents and you're going to move out from underneath their house and they will praise the Lord for that. Uh, And you're going to get a job and you're going to have money. And the question is, will you be content with what God has provided you? And if you're content, how will you handle your money and how will you use your money? Uh, How will you honor him with your money? Um, I think the issue of contentment is a huge one for us. In fact, I was reading some studies even this week and some quotes that talked about the moment that people begin to move over the 50, 50 to 60,000 income mark individually, they begin to find that as they move higher, they often have a greater struggle with contentment. 
I think you and I often think the more we have, the less we'll struggle with contentment. The reality is whether you have little or you have much, you will always struggle with contentment. I think it's really fascinating. Paul will say in Philippians chapter four, not that I speak from what? For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled or going hungry. Notice the struggle of contentment is for those who are poor or those who are rich. No one is outside of the struggle and outside of the grasp of this problem. So whether you have little or you have much, you're going to have to wrestle with contentment. Is what God has provided enough for you? And in particular, is he enough for you? And, and, and as you kind of wrestle through that, I want to give you guys a few questions, I think, to kind of wrestle and begin to think through, hey, where am I on this issue of contentment? And whether I'm a parent or whether I'm a student, whether I have an income or I don't, where am I on this issue of contentment? I'm going to give you guys a few questions. I want you guys to kind of let them bang around in your head and, and kind of sense, hey, where would I land on this? How would, how would this question make me feel? Am I often preoccupied with money, sex, or relationships or something that God provides? How often does my mind get preoccupied in, in wrestling with stuff that I want? Am I often craving things that I don't need or things that I don't have? And is sometimes my desire for those things even greater than God? How do I feel when someone wants to borrow something from me? And how do I feel when they return it damaged and broken? (laughs) Do I feel genuine joy when someone in need asks me for financial help? And do I give and share that which God has given me with others around me? How tightly do I hold on to my stuff? Um, How fearful I am about the future and needing to hoard stuff? How discontent am I in the present where I'm having to grab things that God has not yet provided me? How do you fall in? How do you answer those questions? I'll tell you, honestly, admit to you guys, even this weekend, as I was wrestling through this and thinking through this, these things just hit me right between the eyes. I had a person borrow a piece of lawn equipment and it came back broken. I was incredibly frustrated. (laughs) It's my stuff. Why is someone ruining my stuff? If I didn't lend it out, this wouldn't have happened and I would have been just much more happier and much more content. You and I all wrestle and struggle with contentment. The question is, what is the secret that Paul talks about? What is the secret that Paul mentions? And notice that contentment is a learned thing for Paul and therefore a learned thing for you and I. You and I don't come out of the womb content. Uh, you and I don't even come out of the womb and having trusted in Jesus Christ and enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ and are content. You and I have to learn contentment. And Paul will talk about it as a secret, but the contentment that he found, I think, was because of a sufficiency and a devotion and to a sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Jesus was enough for him. Since Jesus was enough for him, it didn't matter if he had a ton of stuff or he had absolutely nothing. And I think as we kind of transition, what we're going to begin to see is not just that love acts with hospitality, purity, simplicity, but also that love acts with loyalty. Now, what we're going to see is that as you and I struggle uh, with wanting things that God has not provided, we become tempted to take them. And as we become tempted to take them, we become tempted because we're discontent with what God has provided. We We grow frustrated with his provision and with his timing. And then ultimately, our frustration grows beyond his provision to him himself. If he's not provided what we need, maybe we can find a different God. Or maybe we can find something even better to love and something that can better provide for us. When we grow discontent, eventually, if it, if it grows unchecked, we become discontent with God himself because the primary issue is not about sex, it's not about money, it's not about relationships, but it's about Jesus. Is he enough for you and I? Does he satisfy our deepest longings? Is he our future and our security? Or is there something else that defines those things for us? Notice where, what happens next. Notice where love moves. Verse 7. Uh, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and consider the result of their conduct. Imitate their faith. He says, hey, in terms of the, uh, God's leaders, follow them and imitate them. Why does he start there? 
He's going to begin to talk about loyalty. Why does he talk about the, his appointed leaders? I think it's kind of hard to see. We don't get a lot of great examples of this in the New Testament, but we sure do in the Old Testament. When the nation of Israel grows discontent with God, when God is not enough for them, guess what? It is one of the first things that they do. They throw off their leaders. You guys remember Israel's wandering in the wilderness and they begin to grumble and complain at God. And then what do they do next? Moses, we want you gone. We want to find another leader. You're not good enough. And they begin to throw Moses off and they begin to throw God off. And, and ultimately they begin to throw him off because they see in the changing circumstances of their day and time that God is not enough. And yet the writer of Hebrews comes back and he says in verse eight that Jesus doesn't change. Life changes, circumstances change, but Jesus does not. And so he says in verse 8 that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I don't think I learned that any more clearly than when I came here to Texas A&M University as a freshman. Every single thing in my life changed and changed dramatically. And yet the only thing that truly remained the same was Jesus Christ and I walk with him. All the other supports in my life went away. (laughs) All the other things that I depended on and all the other things that were familiar were gone. And all I had was Jesus Christ, who would remain the same whether I was in Dallas, Texas, or whether I was here in College Station. Jesus Christ was the same whether I was a high school student or a college student. And even as my life stages change, Jesus Christ is the same whether I'm single and in a relationship uh, or whether I'm married. And Jesus Christ is the same whether I'm married or whether I have a kid one day. And in the midst of the different stages that we go through, we always struggle with contentment no matter the stage we're in. You may be not be in a relationship right now and you're wanting to be in a relationship. Lord will one day provide you a relationship and then you're going to think, I just want to be married. I'm going through engagement and this is brutal. Could we just get married? And then you're married and then you begin to think one day, hey, I'd love to have kids. And it's one thing after another, after another, the things that you're waiting on God to provide and the wrestling match you have with God about contentment. Is he enough for you and I? Is he enough, especially when the other things have been removed and the other things that we, we want and we desire are gone? Is he enough for you and I? And then he goes on further. And what we're going to see as he kind of goes through this is that he's going to say that love's loyalty is going to move away from all the popular trends of life. Notice verse 10 or verse nine, do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. It says in the midst of throwing off God's leaders and throwing off God himself, the next thing we do is we throw off the truth of God. If God won't provide for me, then the last thing I want to do is believe him just as he's spoken. And maybe his word, maybe his truth isn't as true as I thought. And in fact, also what I want then is to be popular. I want to be where the crowds are. And so notice what he says about identifying with Jesus Christ and notice where it takes us. Verse 10, for we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Notice we're identifying with Jesus Christ takes you and I. It takes us, according to Hebrews, outside of the camp. It takes us uh, outside of popularity. It takes us outside of where the crowds are gathered and where the people are popular and where the ideas are being gathered around. Walking with Jesus Christ is going to land you in what you believe outside of where our culture is going to land us and outside of where the culture is gathering. It's going to land us in a place that we get laughed at and that we get ridiculed. But the question is, is Jesus enough? And is Jesus good? And is he better than everything that the world would offer? And ultimately, as we kind of walk through here, Hebrews chapter 13 for me is a lot like 1 Corinthians 13. Two passages that highlight really what love is and what love does, but it's two passages that just crucify me. <laughs> Uh, two passages that when I look at them and I think about hospitality, I think about purity, I think about simplicity, and I think about loyalty, I fall far short. 
I fell far short of these things before I knew Jesus Christ, and I still far, fall far short of these things after I've known Jesus Christ. I look and I open 1 Corinthians 13 and I look at the great definition, the beauty of what love is, the passage that we read at weddings after weddings after weddings. And over and over and over again, I think how far I fall short. <laughs> I don't love that way. I don't come close to loving that way. I'm not that content. I'm not that simple. And at times I struggle with purity and at times I struggle with hospitality. I hoard, I grab, I'm discontent. And, and at times, I think, ultimately, as we kind of look through these, I think 1 Corinthians 13 and Hebrews 13 really is not a, a, a ruler for you to measure yourself and beat yourself up against. But as you fall short and as you see those, those examples and those areas that you fall short, it is to show you the great supremacy of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Jesus Christ is not just a great example and a great model of love, but he's one who's loved us unlike any other will and any other can. You and I in, in sex, in marriage, in relationships are looking for love that we will never find because the only place that we find it in that way that it satisfies is in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, we find one who gave all that he had. He left the glories of heaven. He came to earth and he took upon himself human nature. And even in his human experience, he gave away all that he could as well. And he took upon himself death on a cross, the most excruciating death and experience you could have ever had. And he gave away all that was his and all that the father had entrusted to him. And it wasn't just that he gave away all that the father had entrusted to him, but he took nothing beyond what the father had given him. He didn't speak beyond what the father had given him. He didn't take power or authority beyond what the father had given him. Satan over and over tempted him with kingdoms and authorities and powers and thrones. And Jesus said, no, Jesus could have called hundreds of angels when he was sitting, when he was hung on the cross. And yet he didn't, he sacrificed and he gave away all that the father had given him. And he took nothing beyond what the father was ready to grant him. He acted with great hospitality. He acted with great purity. And even more so, he acted with great simplicity. He was content with whatever the Father had given him. So much so that he was completely ours and he was completely the Father's. He completely, completely submitted himself to whatever the Father had and he gave himself completely to you and I. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, the beauty of what Christ has done is that as he left the heavens and he came on the earth, he took upon himself the payment for human sin. You and I have all fallen short according to 1 Corinthians 13 and according to Hebrews 13. We don't love this way. We can't love this way. We love self more than we love God. We love self more than we love others. And yet what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf is he's taken the penalty for our sins and our hostility against God and our failures morally. And he took the wrath of God upon himself so that we did not have to take it. And on the cross, he took upon himself that wrath. He took upon himself that penalty so that you and I could have a free gift of eternal life and the forgiveness of our sins. So that you and I can stand righteous and declared right with God, a peace with God, even though we are still struggling and still growing and still at times loving self more than him. And then in Jesus Christ, we get a sense of confidence that we can come to one who understands us, who sympathizes with our weakness. And he took upon himself our sins and the wrath that was to be ours. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, the greatest invitation, the greatest love offer you will ever receive, the greatest need that will ever get bent on your behalf is one Jesus Christ man on your behalf. If you're looking for that kind of love anywhere else, you will never find it. It is in Jesus that we find it. And for those of us who have already entered into that relationship, we have to be reminded yet again that Jesus Christ is the ultimate source for us. He is our sufficiency. He is our supremacy. He is enough and he's better than anything else. As we've been walking through the book of Hebrews for an entire year now, the theme over and over the book of Hebrews over and over is that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the Old Testament prophets. He's better than the priests. He's better than Moses. He's better than Aaron. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than anything out there. 
And so why would you and I fail to remain loyal to him? There's no one better. There's nothing else better. And so ultimately I want to pray for us this morning as we end up. And my question for you is, is he enough for you? What is it that you put in his place? What is it that you think you need more than him? What is it that you think that you need Jesus and? Or is Jesus enough? Let me pray for us. Father God, we come before you in reality for all of us this morning. uh, There are other things that we want. Um, There are other things that we feel that we need. And Father, I pray this morning that you would highlight for us and that you would show to us the greatness of your glory, the greatness of your beauty, and the reality that you are enough for us. You are our creator and our designer, and we were designed and created to have a relationship with you. And in that relationship, we find a sense of joy and satisfaction more than anything else. Father, I pray in the midst of the things that you provided us, Lord, I pray that we would have loose hands with them, that we would be generous with what you provided us. And in the things that we're waiting on, Lord, I pray that you would give us patience and you'd give us contentment to wait on your perfect timing and your perfect provision, no matter what that is and no matter what it looks like. And Father, I pray that you would call us and you would move us out into the world and that we would love one another in a way that would highlight your beauty, your glory, and the love with which you've had for your church. I pray that we could walk in a way with one another, sharing and loving and connecting in a way that would draw others in and would bring others to an intimate understanding of who you are, Lord. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen.